Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak with the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, I'm speaking with Damon Petrie of ADM Capital. And we're talking specifically about a private equity fund called Kibis, which is Latin for food, I learn in this podcast. And what they're investing into is agriculture-focused businesses around the world. In the past, we've talked about agribusiness and some of the trend, trends in that area. That's always really been with a focus on Australia. And one of the things I'm most interested in this conversation is that the global trends and the opportunity that can be taken advantage of investing in this space globally. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. And please also remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and all listeners are reminded that this is not specific or general financial advice and people should always make their own inquiries and seek advice prior to making any investments. Enjoy the episode. Damien Petrie, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. Damien, perhaps you could kick off as we like to do in this uh, podcast and give our listeners a little bit of insight as to who they're going to be hearing from uh, over the next half an hour or so in this episode. Yeah, no, no problem at all. Uh, so, yeah, my background is I was born in the Hunter Valley in a town called Singleton. Um, my family come from uh, a long history of wine up there. Um, I ended up uh, moving to Sydney and, and starting a career in audit um, where I worked for five years um, before stepping into a family office. Um, and that, that opportunity really came about because they were looking to invest in, in wine assets, uh, viticultural predominantly. Um, and obviously with my background and, and knowledge and experience in that sector, it, was, it, it shone very favorably. So that was sort of my first um, step into the, the world of finance. Um, I was there for five years. Uh, we built a, a number of um, uh, sort of vertically integrated um, uh, wine tourism assets all the way from viticulture production through to the, the sales and marketing points parts of the business. Um, after that, I ended up following my career for wine further and, and took a role in commerce for one of Australia's more premier wine brands in WA, Western Australia, um, which was fantastic. It was a step from a family office into a family business, um, which was interesting, an interesting change. Um, I, however, I ended up moving back to the east coast of Australia and stepped into a commerce role, head of finance for Australia's largest non-packer exporter of protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we built a supply chain of processing and, um, and, and livestock assets. So is that uh, Sanger's or Sager's? Sanger Australia, Sanger that's Australia. correct. Okay. And we, we merged that with another uh, producer called Bindery Beef and then sold that um, off to a Hong Kong private equity fund in 2017. Uh, following that, I actually ended up transitioning from the commerce role into, back into finance with, uh, with ADM Capital where I actually met Rob Appleby, and, uh, who's the co-founder of, uh, of ADM Capital and um, our CIO of the Kibis Fund. And he was looking for somebody to help uh, manage the Australian assets and, and portfolios, uh, portfolio, you know, sourcing, execution of opportunities, making sure that they're running to plan and then exiting those in Australia. So that, that's what I do with ADM Capital. From wine to audit, back to wine. I, I, I'm interested there. And, and also, if I'm right, are the Johns brothers 
uh, from Singleton as well? They, they are, Great yeah. fine products out of Singleton. Yeah. There yeah. you go. So, so what was the family's involvement in, um, in, in wine? So, yeah, a few, a few different angles. So we've got family that actually operate uh, vineyards. Um, you know, we have my grandfather actually was one of the founders of the Hunter Valley Wine Show. Uh, so there's actually a trophy called the Petrie Drynan Trophy named after um, wow. my grandfather. So yep. there's quite a long history up in that region of, uh, of um, yeah, uh, interaction within the wine industry. Yeah, many yeah terrific. Levels. So how do you go from that background into audit? Yeah, I guess I was, um, uh, my, my family ended up moving to Sydney when I was relatively young, and that was driven by a decision to, well, that they, they wanted to come to Sydney to have somewhere for um, the necessary services to help my brother, who's actually got an intellectual disability. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, so the farm was sold, all those sort of connections before I was old enough to have a vote. Um, but that being said, it was something that I was always very passionate about. Um, you know, I, I collect wine now. I've spent most of my holidays going to different wine regions around the world in Australia. Uh, it's something I, I love. And um, working in agriculture has then always been the sort of the, the, the direction that I wanted to take my career. Um, I did work in wine and I've, I've, I quickly worked out that um, working in your, uh, your hobby uh, quickly changes how, my, how passionate you are about your hobby. So I think pivoting to the, to the food and food production side, which is sort of relatively parallel to wine, was the, was the right idea. Terrific. Now, tell us about the fund we're going to be talking about today. And I think I've been pronouncing it incorrectly. So, so get, can you tell us how you pronounce it and, and, and what is the, the, the background of that name? Did you say kibis? Kibis, yeah. So it's actually Latin and kibis means food. Um, so, yeah, it's a food fund, food and agriculture fund. But I guess, um, yeah, we, we look at all aspects of the food value chain, um, yes. thinking the farming um, through to all the different inputs that go into that production, right through to, um, I guess, uh, you know, the packaging and right through, we will not touch kind of uh, retail or, or, you know, that, that, that's as far along the supply chain as we will go. But um, when we say food and agriculture, we're, we're specifically looking at the food aspects of agriculture as opposed to the fibre aspects of agriculture, if that makes sense. So, no, so not things like... you explain that for me, that'd be good. Not, not aspects like cotton or forestry, where you, it's agriculture, but it's not food-related inputs, uh, outputs, sorry. Okay. And, and why specifically that focus? What, what, what's the um, driver there? Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, I mean, it's, uh, I'm sure you would have the same thing sitting around the table at your family in the evening, but food and the sustainability of that food production is incredibly important. And more and more people see it um, in increasingly importance, uh, see it increasingly important. Um, for us, uh, being able to produce food more sustainably into the future when we have restraints on amounts of uh, resources available, land, water, we have a growing population that's demanding uh, more high-valued proteins that, that consume more inputs to be produced. Um, we have changes coming from a regulatory level which are, which are fundamentally changing how we produce food. So think about the changes around um, use of different chemicals through, through Europe, um, the banning of fungicides, um, neonicotinoid pesticides. Um, 
We've then got changes from a regulatory angle on, on taxes for these externalities of unhealthy foods, like mm -hmm. the, the sugar tax. Mm -hmm. um, and then you overlay across all this, and depending on which article you read, we've got um, up to you know, 30 to 40 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions coming from uh, food production. And in a world where we're trying to decarbonize, um, that that's going to be pointing a spotlight fairly on our food, um, on our food production systems. You know, our consumers are wanting to know where their food's coming from. I certainly do. I know my family does. When I sit at the table, everyone talks about it. Um, but it's not so simple as just switching everything to organic overnight, because in some regards that that actually requires more resources. So we need to be conscious about our growing population, the ability to be able to feed mouths, not um, uh, you know, divert or, or, or fix poverty, but also be able to um, produce food sustainably into the future. I think that's the problem that, that we're trying to solve with this fund. Excellent. And I think we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the Kibis Fund too. Um, and we might, as a way of you know, illuminating that, talk about Fund One and what it's done and how it's performed. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about the actual manager itself and ADM Capital? Who's ADM Capital? What do they do? Where are they based? What, what's their expertise? Yeah, sure. No, great question. So ADM Capital uh, has been around for um, some 22, 23 years. Uh, they were actually founded out of Hong Kong uh, by a couple of English gentlemen who saw an opportunity to um, to basically restructure the debts of companies um, in Asia uh, mm -hmm. who had got themselves uh, in trouble following the Asian financial crisis in borrowing in foreign currencies. Mm -hmm. So ADM was, was born then. It stands for Asian Debt Management Capital. Um, Rob Appleby, one of the founders, is actually a zoologist by, by training and has always been incredibly passionate about food and food production. Um, in about 2015, circa, he moved back to the UK from Hong Kong and really wanted to focus on um, investments, direct private equity style investments into food and agriculture. Um, Rob had obviously had a long track record of investing into food and agriculture companies and restructuring them through, through Asia. And he saw the issues firsthand of um, the need to be more sustainable and the population growth and the demand for food, having spent a lot of his career there. Uh, so the Kibbers Fund was born um, in, in 2017. We raised the first fund. Um, it was a $322 million US fund. Um, and yeah, I guess. And what did it invest into and how has that gone? So, yeah, I mean, the, the sectors that we invested into broadly broken down into I guess, uh, three categories. Um, you've got uh, in our mid-market sector, which is, you know, about 90% of where our capital goes. Uh, that is, uh, I think, productive businesses with, with high amounts of assets, um, you know, orchards, uh, glass houses, uh, where the balance sheets are quite heavy, and so we're owning and operating these productive businesses. Um, are you owning just the business or the land as well? The, all of the assets and the operating entities, so we do both. Okay. So we, we call that our um, real asset-backed um, productive businesses. And, uh, and, and I should add, this is all private, private equity private listed, equity. and it's a private equity fund. That's correct, yeah. Okay. Uh, the second element is um, what we term, and it's also in our, in our private equity mid-market strategy, is what we call um, our, our, our private equity growth strategy. And these are more 
um, sort of balance sheet light in so, as so far as um, tangible assets. They're quite heavy probably, or they are in, in intangibles. So think robotics, um, mm -hmm. alternatives to traditional pesticides and fungicide use or chemicals. Um, so what, what are those new disruptive technologies in that mid-market space? What are they? What are those companies? Uh, so that, that sort of makes up 90% of our portfolio, those two strategies. And then we have a 10% allocation um, or 10% of our capital really is, is going towards ag tech, food tech companies. And that's quite interesting that we've actually put this sort of, you know, this venture strategy in with our mid-market fund. And it's, mm -hmm. I think, as far as I know, we're the only sort of uh, food and agriculture fund that's done that. But the reason for doing it is we believe that the technology well, that technology is going to be a key um, uh, enabler for us to transition to a more sustainable food production system. And by having um, a fund that invests in all the cutting edge technology, we will be able to see all the best um, opportunities globally. And whether we invest in them or not, we can actually trial those in our mid-market portfolio companies um, and see how they work and work out the real return on investment to a producer. And then, you know, hopefully that's shifting the needle in terms of our sustainability and our, and our overall uh, production. So Damon, 2017 fund open, tell us um, about how that has gone. Um, how long did it take for all the capital to be called and deployed? And, and, and what does it roughly look like in terms of, you know, has the capital all been fully deployed? And, and how are those companies tracking and what sort of areas has it been deployed into? Sure. Well, it took three years actually from from uh, start to finish to invest the three hundred and twenty-two million. And in fact, um, I might just add another little element to this. When <clears throat> in our initial fund one, we had the ten percent allocation to the food tech ag tech, which is actually more of a late stage venture strategy. So mm -hmm. we're looking for revenue positive companies, but. Um, we had that within the fund. So the fund was 90% mid-market and 10% allocated to, uh, to late-stage venture. We decided, and, and in conjunction with our LPs, that um, we wanted more diversification in the, the late-stage venture part of the portfolio. So what we did is we actually seeded that out, those investments out into a separate fund called the Kibis Enterprise Fund. Mm -hmm and topped up that fund directly with, the, uh, with the investors. And that gave us a much uh, larger, about 18 investments in that mix, um, as opposed to the sort of five or six we had it, uh, previously in our fund. Uh, we've actually followed that today in, this, in our current strategy for fundraising. Um, so really what it is, is our Kibis fund, which is our mid-market fund, just has a 10% investment in our, into our ag tech fund. And I think that's important to note. Um, especially when we come to the second point and talk about performance. So um, as far as performance goes, we're, we're typically seeing in our mid-market portfolio around a 22% gross IRR, which is translating mm -hmm. to around that sort of 17% net. Um, we've had two exits, um, well, one full exit, one, uh, one exit that we're, we're just working through at the moment, I should clarify. Um, and then we have this, with the 10% allocation into the venture strategy, where we're getting these sort of kicker returns, um, you know, that's tracking at around a 30% IRR. And so bringing that in is sort of turbocharging our, our IRRs up into the you know, mid-20s overall. Um, 
So yeah, I think it's important to note that there's that allocation as opposed to the direct investments in the fund from a diverse, diversification point of view. Yeah, to give the listeners a little bit of a flavour of the types of things you like to do and how you think about it, what were some of the success stories in um, that fund or some of the things that have gone very well? And maybe talk about one or two that you wish you could have over or do slightly differently. Yeah, sure. So, well, we could talk about, I'll give you one example in each of the categories, if you like, because the real asset-backed businesses, um, so the orchards, the glasshouse productive companies, these are really interesting um, because they are a, a true inflation hedge with that amount of land and assets on the balance sheet. An example of that is um, Inalever, which is our uh, olive um, and olive oil business based in Spain and Portugal. Uh, we acquired that company, it was circa 4,000 hectares of super high density olive orchards in Spain and Portugal. And by high density, that means that they're actually uh, harvested using very similar technology to a grape harvester. They go over the rows, over the trees and shape the trees. So it's fully automated. And that, that, that drives our cost of production per litre of extra virgin olive oil down to being global um, or best performing level globally. Um, Excuse my ignorance, is that unique? Uh, olive trees normally picked by hand or something? No, that there are mechanically harvested uh, trees. This isn't uncommon, but when you have, but, but there are <laughs> a lot of businesses that do still hand pick. And mm -hmm. so that does obviously add a lot of cost. Um, when you're able to, to drive a typical grape combine harvester, style grape over the vine harvester over the top and, and shake those trees, um, you are getting a, a better cost of production um, compared to hand picking, but also compared to other traditional methods of, of harvesting those, which might involve you know, mm -hmm. laying out nets and shaking a tree, other methods, and then collecting. Um, okay. Uh, so laying down a net and shaking the tree. Wow. They do that in old old, they do that in almonds. It's uh, it's actually very so, common. So, so you bought you acquired the business one hundred percent. So is that yep. the model of the fund to acquire? It's not a private equity growth type strategy where you're investing alongside a founder or someone looking to grow the business? Yeah, so we, 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 it's a combination, but we will always be uh, majority. Uh, we'll always have control in all of our positions. Um, so in Interlever, we were actually 100%. Um, some of our, I guess where we have expertise in being able to grow or produce that type of product, um, you know, there's no reason why we can't do the homework and find the best location and, and produce that, that, um, that product. So a lot of people in our firm at my level and this, the um, partner level actually come from a, a, you know, a farming background in one way, shape or form. So there is a lot of experience in, in, a, in our firm. Um, but I guess in some businesses, if we're thinking robotics, um, we might try and partner with the the expertise within those companies to to drive those 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 cash flows going forward but going back to Interlever, this the business plan was really to expand the productive um, area of the of the orchard so we've taken that up to about eight thousand hectares total now not all of that is producing uh, we've converted approximately two two and a half thousand hectares to organic and that obviously drives an extra about one euro per litre of, of sales price, um, which flows straight to the bottom line. And we also have our own mill, and what that means is we can actually, um, you know, we can actually press our olives and make our extra virgin olive oil directly, and we can control the quality that's going into the marketplace. A lot of, I mean, you've heard 
a lot of the issues in, in olive oil production around um, uh, large companies blending and, and you know taking the best and worst from different areas and blending and making playing that arbitrage, mm -hmm. we control that. So claiming it's the really good high quality stuff when it's only one one thousandth or similar. Yeah, that's like right. Like it happens in coffee with you know the prize Brazilian Arubica bean yep. or whatever it's called. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And so I guess another example of our um, real asset backed companies would be uh, sorry of our of our more private equity growth style companies would be ISO Group. Uh, ISO Group is a robotics, a vision assisted robotics company. Um, so they, uh, they're based in the Netherlands um, and, th and think about um, automatic stem planting where they take cuttings of roses or um, uh, forestry trees and a, a robot is able to look on a table, on a bench, see all those different cuttings, work out exactly how it needs to pick up one of those cuttings and how exactly to plant it into a pot. Mm -hmm. And it can do thousands of those an hour by looking and seeing um, exactly what's needed. So that's one example. They've got bulb planting, they've got grafting robots. Um, so really what it's doing is trying to solve the labor issues that, that we're seeing in in, in agriculture, uh, which is which is incredibly important, um, and a, a super exciting business. In fact, that technology is actually being used in uh, the first investment in our Kibis Fund uh, Two, uh, which is uh, with Cot Seedlings. They're actually using those grafting robots uh, um, currently to to eliminate this large volatility in their workforce. Um, you know, going in one week and you need 40 extra people to do a set of grafting that are not needed two weeks later, um, you know, poses massive challenges for these businesses, particularly when they're in remote areas. So Damon, what are the big trends in agriculture and food production that you see coming down the pipeline that we're not currently uh, adopting? Yeah, <clears throat> I think um, the, the big trend that I'm seeing is the, the, the trend towards net zero. I think that that's coming and mm -hmm. it's coming quickly, but I, I think there's a lot of businesses that haven't got, uh, well, haven't got the, the systems and processes set up internally to be able to manage and track and report on their, their carbon emissions. Um, and you know, I'm a firm believer that when you measure something, you, you manage something. And I think there's a lot of businesses that are gonna be shocked as, that, as, that, as those changes come in place. Um, yeah, I, I mean, th that to me would be the number one. I would say all other areas of, of ESG are becoming increasingly important, right? So water usage efficiency, chemical usage, all of these changes build up into, um, you know, add layers into this ESG um, area, which I think, you know, we track on a, on a monthly basis and report on quarterly our KPIs for every single one of these businesses that are relevant for specific companies. For example, in our almond business, we're tracking the megaliters of water that we use per hectare and per, per output. Um, we use technology, dendrometer technology, to really um, try and minimize our water usage, and we're currently about 23% lower in water usage than California. Okay, so how do you profit out of that trend and that decarbonization going on? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I guess the way we look at um, the way we look at it is very much a picks and shovels approach to to this sec to this uh, to this trend. And 
in order to give the best uh, answer, I might touch on a real example. Uh, so our first investment in Fund 2 is a, a vegetable seedling nursery. Um, it is um, one of Australia's largest seedling companies um, producing you know, all the different vegetable types, brassicas, broccolis, um, everything. It's a service provider into the industry. So essentially they're germinating seed for a farmer. Uh, and you know, all protected cropping, so you know, no um, externalities or no, no, no impact, sorry, from, from uh, external weather events, no agricultural weather risk. Uh, but the way we looked at it, we termed that as uh, natural capital. And um, the way we looked at natural capital with this seedling uh, company was we could use the existing infrastructure within this seedling business to start producing native seedlings. So think eucalyptus, acacias, um, other sort of native species that, were, that are in demand and in growing demand for various carbon sequestration projects, rehabilitation projects, um, amongst others. Uh, for us, it was a, a natural segue for that business plan to, to become a supplier of natives, native plants. Uh, if we looked at when we looked at the sector in Australia, and the trend is is rather similar globally, but in Australia, uh, native species are growing. The, the consumption of these native species are growing at about a twenty six percent compound per annum, so incredibly fast growth. Uh, we're seeing uh, the current demand for those plants is about sixty to sixty five million plants per per year currently. Uh, and the suppliers into that industry are incredibly fragmented. Uh, so, you know, l usually very small uh, nurseries, one to two million plants per annum. Um, so low amounts of technology and automation, high labor, um, high labor unit costs. Compare that to uh, Withcott seedlings, which has, you know, 265 million seedlings per annum with a large amount of automation and lower labor unit costs. There was the ability to leverage off that systems and automation to start producing these native species. So, Damon, are you interested in getting involved in sort of mass market agriculture farming areas like cotton, cattle, broadacre farming, um, those areas, or is it more niche related? Yeah, I wouldn't say niche, but um, I, I certainly. W we're not involved and we will not be involved in cotton or cattle farming. Um, these are lower value um, crops, um, generally speaking, over a, low t over a long term. Um, they are susceptible and, and to um, uh, climate risks, uh, weather risks, etc. Uh, we do not take on those same climate or weather risks in any of our businesses. So you think glass houses, all indoors, or um, you know, permanent uh, row crops, you know, orcharding, uh, where we can own a super high security water source and put that in, so drought proofing those, those businesses. Uh, so things like cattle, uh, wheat, dryland cropping, um, yeah, we, we will not go near for those reasons. And do you own water rights at all in the, in the fund? We do, yeah, in different different ways. Uh, it's not always, you know, uh, we, we invest in OECD economies globally. So mm -hmm. you know, Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand. The way that water works in Australia, uh, particularly Lower Murray, isn't the way it necessarily works in Spain, for example, um, whereby we've separated out our water, water rights from, from the land and they can be traded independently. 
in, in Spain, they're, they're still very much attached to the land. You buy the land, you, you get that high security water right. So mm -hmm. they're different in different markets, but we, we aim to take on, um, well, we look at the global arbitrage between land and water and where we can actually obtain the, the, the best arbitrage, the best value entry capex point for land and water relative for that crop type in OECD economies. And where, where do you typically tend to find those opportunities? It's different for different crop types. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, we, we actually currently have almonds in, in the lower uh, Murray-Darling in, in Fund 1. At Fund 2 is actually looking at almonds in Spain and Portugal because we're seeing a, an arbitrage in terms of the land and water um, price for, for almonds. Uh, if we looked at um, you know, other, other nut crops, there's an advantage in, say, northern Australia for things such as um, uh, macadamias. Um, you know, and the water and, and infrastructure and the climatic um, growing regions required for that crop. Um, other crops we're looking at in the Northern Hemisphere include um, Kiwi Gold, and that's, you know, slated for, for Italy. Uh, so, yeah, I guess different, different areas being suitable for those crops and then, and then within those areas globally, what is the, where can we get the best capital arbitrage? Now, some of our listeners would be interested, we have had uh, Kim Morrison from Argyle Water, and we've also had Kilter Rural, Callan Gunn on the podcast before, um, and talking about the Australian water rights framework and the separation of you know, water rights to land values and the investment thesis in that area. Um, given where you sit in the market, I'd be interested in your view as to whether you think Australia's system is productive and produces good outcomes, or whether you think there are better models around the world. Uh, I think Australia's model is fantastic and, you know, it, it, it ensures that the water is always available um, and that the system is, is, a, is a very well regulated system uh, and designed not to completely run out. And I think that that model is, you know, it's currently in the process of being replicated in other parts around the world or investigated by, by universities for use in, in California and, and other places. So I uh, certainly... Um, yeah, I have a high amount of respect for the Australian water system. What I do see, though, is if you looked at almonds, for example, where, you know, to plant one hectare of almonds down in the lower Murray, getting high security water resource, you know, it, it, you were probably looking somewhere between hundred dollars to $120,000 for that one hectare just to own the water in, in a high security permanent water entitlement. Then you've got to buy the land, then you've got to plant the trees and you've got to grow the crop. And, you know, you've got three years till it starts to de develop a crop. Uh, so, so it's, you know, a good $160,000 Aussie uh, per one hectare to get that crop going. If you compare that to southern Spain, you can get the water resource and the land for a fraction of that price, about a 60% discount. Uh, and it's pressurised water resource provided to your farm gate. So it's a, it's a fundamentally different system. Now, yes, there's differences. You might not be able to irrigate the same quantity of water per hectare. That translates into slightly lower yields. But the, the real differential here is that that major discount on the entry capital value is really shifting those IRRs and providing a higher risk-adjusted return uh, overall. And, and where around the world do you see the real um, leadership come from in terms of the technology in the agri area? Uh, listeners of the podcast would be familiar with one of the, the strategies we've had in the past that 
um, focuses on Israeli technologies. And you know, one of the things I found fascinating um, inside that fund and talking with many of the investee companies is that you know, they've, in Israel they've been forced to be able to um, be very, very good with water. And you see now they have a lot of good irrigation technologies. Um, where around the world are you seeing real leadership come from? You've referenced a couple of, I think, you know, from the Netherlands already. Um, is that a leader in the area or are there other areas that you could say, generally speaking, we're seeing some great technology out of these areas or where do you expect it to come from as well? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we're seeing really exciting uh, technology globally um, coming out of all different regions. So maybe to touch on a few examples in our uh, Fund One portfolio. So. Uh, we, we've done uh, insect farming, uh, soldier fly farming in Canada. Um, so, you know, super... As a source of protein? Uh, yeah, and basically to replace, um, you know, well, to provide um, uh, feed stock for Okay, feed uh, stock isn't for people <laughs> eating, okay. No, it's not yet. We're not yet providing it to humans, um, but... Uh, I've heard about crickets being trialled for that. Yeah, I actually tried some at the food show on the weekend. Uh, wasn't 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 as bad as I thought, but um, uh, so these are, these are used for feedstock for, for chickens and aquaculture farms, basically trying to produce a more sustainable uh, food for, for um, uh, these businesses. Uh, it's, you know, all indoor grown. It's, it's, uh, they're, they're feeding the, the soldier flies off, a, um, off an industrial uh, food waste source that would ordinarily go into a landfill. So it's a, a great sort of circular economy story. Uh, we've got technologies in so far as water um, treatment, uh, so nanobubble technology uh, based in the US, um, alternatives to um, you know, traditional pesticides, I think um, biopesticides, pheromone technology, where they're actually using what an insect smells to try and disrupt mating patterns with bio alternatives. Mm -hmm. um, we've done a lot in that future meat sort of space, so the um, cell-based meat lab grown meat, um, plant-based meat. Um, we've got investments in alternative sweeteners, uh, which is quite interesting. So a lot of the, the push away from uh, using sugar to sweeten foods, um, but rather using a vegan alternatives and mycelium-based alternatives, mushroom-based. Uh, robotics, a lot in robotics. Um, robotics that also includes um, robots that can, can treat um, various uh, fung fungal issues on, on vines and crops, so powdery mildew with ultraviolet light. So they drive up and down rows and treat, you know, a grapevine, for example, with ultraviolet light to remove the use of these hard uh, fungicides. Uh, a lot in the way of um, human health, so think prebiotics, probiotics, um, alternative packaging, so moving away from plastics. Uh, uh, we've got, um, the, B, B tech, so think um, sensors that we can place in beehives that we can understand the health of those bees before there's an issue, uh, which is incredibly important. It's like Fitbit for bees. Yeah, it's a Fitbit for a bee, exactly. Uh, wow. So if, if there was, what are the big areas at the moment that you would look, see deals coming at you and be excited about? And equally, what are the areas that you just wouldn't go at the moment? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, in the in the mid market space, I mean, the areas that we're finding uh, pretty exciting is uh, the technology in, in robotics, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot in that space in that mid market 
sector now. A lot of companies have matured in, in OECD markets uh, and you know, we, we, we see a great opportunity there to accelerate those businesses forward. Um, human health is another, another area um, uh, and animal health for, for change. So in Fund One, we did an investment in a, um, a waste to nutraceutical ingredient business called um, Waitaki Biosciences. We see a huge trend in consumers uh, continuing to focus on their own health, their gut health, um, as you know, our Western diets have proved to be um, uh, not ideal for, for the way, for our own health. So seeing issues as gluten intolerance, leaky mm -hmm. gut, these sort of problems, and consumers are looking towards what are the alternatives, the healthy alternatives that I can, uh, I can, I can take. And that, that sector, I think, is pretty exciting as well. And what sort of things would you look to avoid? I think you've said cattle and cotton as one of the other major areas that you see a lot of that you, you really avoid. Yeah, I think, uh, I guess it's, um, we'll look at anything and everything to make sure we're not missing something, um, you know, and, but broadly speaking, um, if it's an area that is taking on, um, you know, a climate risk, um, you know, drought, fire, floods, those sort of areas, we just don't, don't go near it. Uh, we we want to be mitigated from all those risks, and we want to be involved in um, those food groups or, or or inputs where we see there's a, a massive tailwind or regulatory headwind changing um, changing what's happening. And Damon, what portion of the assets within the fund are backed by hard assets versus those backed by intellectual property? In our in our mid market fund, it's um, it's about forty it's about forty five percent with the real asset backing, forty five percent with the intangible IP style businesses, and then the residual ten percent is that investment in the in the ag tech fund. Okay, and and how have you gone about? I would imagine in the in the protein replacement type of businesses that we've seen, the valuations of those probably rolled off a lot with a lot of the high growth stories this calendar year. How have you fared in that area? Yeah, look, I think we've fared fairly well. I mean, Alistair Cooper, who's our partner that leads our venture strategy, um, he's re really good at understanding uh, value and, 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 the, the, and the valuation cycles within the marketplace. Um, so making sure that we're not entering at a, at a toppy valuation. Um, we'll compare all the tech and all the valuations relative um, to make sure that we've still got sort of upside in these businesses as far as valuation goes. So I think for us, we, we've actually fared uh, pretty well across our portfolio. Um, it's been, you know, invested fairly continually over the last, um, well, last three years. So we've had, you know, the ups and downs of, of COVID and, and pre and post. Uh, yeah. And Damon, how do tell me how the mechanics work for a, a, a transaction or a business to enter the portfolio? Do you have a quota geogra geographically split, split, and then in, in each sort of vertical that you're trying to fill, or does something just come up organically within the group, and then there's an investment committee that decides yes, we'll go ahead with that based on the merits of it? So, I guess what we do is we, we research sectors that we want to be involved in. Um, you know, in, in so far as natural capital, we researched exactly what the best way to get involved in, you know, the, the decarbonisation of the, of the food supply chain and, you know, the, 
the approach that we took was we'd rather be a supplier of trees into that space than someone who's actually generating carbon credits. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know that led us to the nursery space. So then we started looking at all different nurseries and OECD economies. And um, so that was a trend we were following. Now, that being said, it was fortuitous because an opportunity arose to invest in a nursery in Australia. So there was a combination of the two. Um, but what we are trying to do is self-source a lot of our opportunities. So when we find that vertical that we're interested in, whether it's you know, almonds in Spain or you know, nurseries in OECD markets or kiwi fruits in Italy, uh, we, we will go out and try and self-source those opportunities um, where possible. And the majority of our investments in Fund One were actually self-sourced in our mid-market um, uh, portfolio. So, yeah, we, we, we build relationships with those, uh, with those, with those vendors, um, show them what we have already in place and what we're capable of and, and how we operate these businesses. Um, that takes a long time. We, if we're going to partner with them, we spend a lot of time working with them on the business plan and getting it agreed and what are their rights as a minority, what are ours. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we do a transaction. So that, that's our preferred method to, to do it all off market. Um, but that being said, there's the occasional time where, you know, we have to hustle and do something on market because it might be the right opportunity. Well, terrific. I think that's been a good initial overview for our listeners um, of the area. That sounds very exciting. Um, I'll leave you with the last word. If there's any other things that you think is pertinent for our listeners to get an update on, um, now's your chance and, and, and then I'll thank you. No, I really appreciate the time and I, I won't add anything else. I think it's been a fantastic opportunity. Thank you, David. Terrific. Thanks, David. Thanks, thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.